Good morning, church. I am aware today that uh, it's early in the year. It's the second Sunday of a new year, and so um, some of you are here, and you're conscious of the calendar, and uh, I want to check in and see how mom's doing with you uh, before before we go, Steve. If um, uh, Sorry, excuse me. I just... Been, I've been meaning to do that over the phone, and uh, um, I'm aware this morning that we're early in the year, and this is the second Sunday of the year, and so I, I'm, I'm aware of the, the, the calendar um, that we live by, the annual calendar. It's the second Sunday in January, and, um, and this morning, I'm going to suggest to you uh, that the, the, the events in our lives are important, whatever calendar we live by. And, and the annual calendar is one of them. There's, there's the, December, the January to December calendar. There's what the church calls the liturgical calendar or the church calendar. That is um, the calendar uh, that the church has that begins not in January but in Advent. It is, it is the Christian community's way of saying we live in response to time in a particular way. We, we begin our lives, we orbit our lives around events that start with the coming of Christ. And eventually we get to the season of Epiphany, which is what we're in now. And Lent will come along and Pentecost will come along. There's the liturgical calendar. There's also the academic calendar. Some of you are students. Some of you are teachers. Uh, there are parents here of small children. And you're, you're used to the academic calendar. You know what it means to come around August historically and September and, and to, to prepare your mind and your energy to look at a set of classes, uh, to interact with teachers, to think about homework. And, and now, of course, the calendar has changed a little bit depending on what school you you go to, but there is the academic calendar. There, there's the annual calendar, there's the church calendar, there's the, the academic calendar. We live by all kinds of calendars, and, and on our calendars are all kinds of meetings, all kinds of things we schedule ourselves for. We have all of these events that make up our lives on our calendars, whatever the ones we live by. And this morning, I'm going to go to an event with you in Scripture that that is a defining event in the Christian story. This this event is one of the most controversial in our Christian faith. Uh, It's not the incarnation, which isn't that controversial. Most people don't make a fuss when babies are born. We celebrate when babies are born. So when Jesus came, his incarnation, as we call it, wasn't that much of an event, if you will. It was meaningful because the Savior had to come. If if Jesus did not come, he could not live, he could not die, so forth. But his coming was not that controversial. His ministry wasn't even that controversial. His life, his teachings, of course, he was a, a strange man. He was a healer. He was a prophetic individual. He was a great teacher. But people who look at his ministry admire his ministry, admire his self-giving nature, admire what made up his life. Not a whole lot of controversy when it comes to the life and teachings of Jesus, not for most people. 
The problem for Christians, the problem for us who are a part of the Christian life, the problem for us really gets to that other event called the resurrection. The promise and the problem of our faith hinges not so much on what Jesus said when he taught, not so much even on his death, as horrendous as it was in response to the state's uh, way of treating uh, a man who was not a criminal, who they made a criminal. The problem and the promise uh, of our faith really hinges on the event of his Death and resurrection. His body being entombed one day and then another day at not. So this morning, we're going to look at uh, this, this resurrection, this event, and, and right after it happened. We're going to go in Scripture to a couple of post-resurrection stories. And, and, and I want you to think about how uh, the people of God in these texts are dealing with certain things and how God in Christ responds to what they're dealing with. I I want you to listen for the word of God to us this morning because I'm aware that, that our lives don't always work according to ordered calendars, that our problems and our situations don't always end at the end of the calendar year. So some of you are here this morning and you're dealing with some of the things that these disciples are dealing with and you're wondering whether or not God has something to say to you about your life right now. You're, you're wondering whether or not God has something to say, even though you're in a new year with old issues. My hope is that we will hear God's word for us. We'll go to the gospel of Mark, we'll go to the gospel of John, we'll go to the gospel of Luke, and we will do it, we will move through it. Each one, I just want to pull one thing from each passage talk for a little while, and then I'll sit down. So I will read the first passage this morning. I'm going to ask you to read the second passage in a little while with me, and then I'm going to have you read the last passage alone. So I want you to get your vocal cords ready this morning, if you don't mind. So now you can just kind of rest and listen to me. I'll read the first one. Is that all right? Are you listening? Y'all kind of quiet, so it's hard hard to read you, and, and and I've missed a couple of days, so I don't know what's going on with you, but I want you to open up your mouth at some point, okay? I'm just, just telling you, just telling you. We're going to go to Mark uh, chapter 16, um, verses 1 through 8 here. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. 
You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We know these women in Mark 16. We don't, we don't hear their names as often as we hear the names of uh, the most popular 12. But we recognize um, these sisters here. And I'm, I'm glad and I appreciate that Mark gives us detail that Mark doesn't always give. Mark is not the most detailed of gospel writers. We usually go to Luke for a lot of detail. But Mark tells us who these disciples are. And when these women come um, after the Sabbath had passed, we can remember uh, Mary, the mother of James. We know Mary Magdalene. They are followers of Jesus. Uh, and we, we recall when we read their names how faithful they've been in following Jesus, even when um, they haven't always been up front and on stage. They have supported his ministry. They have been by his side. They were close to him through the end, and here they are after his end, coming to anoint him. These disciples um, are really, really good at being um, busy for Jesus. They are behind, they are the engine behind his itinerary. They are the engine behind his itinerant ministry. When the gospel writers do tell us who they are, they give us labels and, and leak, if you will, details that these are the women who finance Jesus's ministry. These are the women who are often ready for him when he comes from one town to another. And we know these disciples. We get to see them here again being consistent and faithful to Jesus even after he has died. They are on their way to the tomb and, and the Bible says that there's something going on between them. Bouncing from one to the other is something that we need to pay, take note of and that is they are worried. They are stressed. They are anxious and they're worried, stressed and anxious about who will roll the stone away once they come to the tomb. They know um, that they're going to see, once they get into the tomb, a body that is laying on a shelf waiting to be decomposed like other ossuaries, like other tombs, the body of Jesus will be on a shelf being um, waiting and, and decomposing and their role will be to anoint him. Their role will be to prepare his body for that long year where it will sit on that shelf and, and after that year, someone will come, disciples like them will come and collect his bones and put the bones of Jesus in what they call an ossuary or a bone box. They will 
stamp or etch or chisel. Maybe an artist will come and chisel his name on that bone box and put it up off the side on one of those other shelves. They are readying themselves for that. But before they get to the decomposing body of Jesus, before they get to anoint him with spices and aromas, they have this scratching, irritating question, this worry, this anxiety of who will move this large stone. These women, these disciples of Jesus are like some of us because they don't know the thing they're worried about has already been addressed by God. They don't know that the thing that is moving them, God has already had. And, and, and I think that what they teach us this morning is that, is, is that as God's church and as followers of Jesus, we can benefit from their story by learning how to anticipate the faithfulness of God. Of course, we know because we read the gospel that the stone is rolled away. They look up and they see this. They, they see this. But before they get there, they are wondering how God will do this great task. So how do we do it? How do we, as followers of Jesus, anticipate God's faithfulness? I'll give you three uh, small ways to try to break this, this point out of anticipating God's faithfulness. I think they're for us as a church. I think they can be for us in our families, for us as individuals. How do we take from their story? How do we see from this post-resurrection account of these disciples, these sisters, worrying about what God will do and yet anticipating God's faithfulness? The first is to track what God does. Say that. Say that to yourself. Say track what God does. See, you're talking, you're talking. One of y'all, two of y'all might even say amen before this is over. So I have great faith. I'm I'm anticipating you, uh, your faithfulness. In this text, this stone is already gone. Uh, And this is an example of God's faithfulness in the text. But I want you to think about your life this morning. I want you to think about what it means for you to track God's behavior in your life. This is the beginning of a year, and maybe you're here this morning, and you're wondering how you might do something differently this year than you didn't do last year. Uh, And and, and just like last week, during testimony time, where we were really tracking the movement of God and the activity of God in our lives, that's essentially what I'm talking about here. you tracking God's work, tracking what God does. you noticing what God does. And you naming it. If you're a writer, writing it. If you journal, journaling it. Tracking what God does so that eventually you have a way of saying, I know that God is at work. I have seen God acting. I have seen God moving stones. Here is when God did it. It was early in the morning after the Sabbath day. This is who I was with when I saw God in some way, in ways that I can't even explain, Move large stones. 
I think you can do this every day. I think you can do this without a whole lot of effort. I think we can do this as a church when we come together and we greet one another and say, how was your week? This is one thing God did for me. My week was good. Tracking what God does. I think we can do this in our small group gatherings. I think we can do this when we tell our stories, tracking what God does. Number two, how do we anticipate God's faithfulness? We pray the words that God gives. In this text, this young, white-robed man sitting off to the side in the tomb delivers to these women the word of God. And, and when I look at Scripture and when I question Scripture and sometimes when I prepare to preach Scripture, I look for prayers in the language of the text. And I think that, that there is a prayer here because the young man gives these women the words of God. And in this text, it is, do not be alarmed. In this text, it could be, you seek Jesus. And, and I want to suggest to you that here and in other places throughout the Word of God, maybe in your own spiritual life, maybe this week, God gave you something. And I know that's a slippery thing to say when, when, when you claim that God told you something or God gave you a word and that's been abused in my background. Maybe you've seen that abused and not handled well, people telling you what God said. And so you want to be careful about that. But here, these women know that they're hearing from God. This angel, this person, is speaking the words of Jesus. Jesus had already told his disciples and Peter that he would be going before them to Galilee. Jesus had already told them what they could expect after his death, even though they did not understand it. So these words are the words of God. And they may be words that we need to find in our mouths when we're praying, trying to anticipate God working in our lives. Lastly, uh, under this point of anticipating God's faithfulness, um, I want to tell you to live as if you couldn't be wrong. Live as if you couldn't make a mistake. Think about these disciples here. They're, they're seeing the tomb without Jesus' corpse. And they're being told to go to their friends and to tell them something. And the text ends by telling us they go away for fear and astonishment had seized them. They go away afraid. They go away excited. The, the language there is sort of ecstasy. They, they are entranced. They are captured. They are captivated. They, they, are, they are taken by what they see and what they don't see. And, 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 but, but, but they are sent. And they have to live like us who don't get these sorts of miraculous moments with God or God's beings or angelic beings or strange people dressed in white robes. They have this utterance behind them and they have to live as if what they heard was true. 
And I think it's the same for us. I think whatever the decisions in your life, once you know what God has said, once you know this has been confirmed, I've, I've heard this over and over again. Jesus spoke just like he spoke to the disciples. I've read this in scripture. A lot of smart people who trust God have said these things to me. How can I not say that this is God's word to me? Live as if that is right. There is a sense in which, um, and this year, some of you will have major decisions to make, and uh, some of you will have minor decisions that you make major in your life. Some of you are just after some major decisions in your life. And uh, Byron, I thought about our conversation when I was over this text, too, and, 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 and thinking about making decisions. And do I go this way? Do I go that way? Do I say this or do I say that? And my point is, after you have heard the word of God, which is to you the word of God, like these women, be fearless. Live as if there is no way you could make a mistake. Because, because the, the, the reality is, um, sometimes you hear the word providence. Sometimes you hear about God's providence. And I think, uh, and if you put me in a corner, I'll say this to you a little differently, but I'll say it this way now. I think for the Christian, there is absolutely no way you can make a mistake when you live for God. I think that in front of you is God. I think the, the, the decision you're making about whether you teach here or teach there, If it matters to God, you will know. If it doesn't matter to God, choose. You can't be wrong. And these women have to go from this miraculous empty tomb as if what they heard is right. And in your life and my life, we do too. Now, again, I'm trying to qualify this because you could, you could take what I'm saying and live as if you could be wrong and live recklessly. And I'm not suggesting that. But I'm suggesting after you have heard, sensed, whatever you want to call it, something from God, go. And anticipate God's faithfulness. Our second text is in John 20, verses 19 through 23. Now, this is the one that we will read together, okay? Some of you are really fast readers. You'll have to slow down or you'll make us sound crazy. Others of you are slow readers and... We'll slow down, but you might have to speed up a little bit. Some of you aren't ready yet. You don't want to read, and that's okay. You'll just look really silly. Um, so read with me, if you will, and by the third time, we'll all, you'll all be reading together. But we'll read this together. Uh, this is from the English Standard Version. You ready? Come on. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples were glad. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I'm only pulling one uh, point out of this passage like the other, but let me say this before I say that. Um, if you're here this morning and You read about the disciples' fear here in John 20. And there's something that comes up for you because there's something you are afraid of. If you're here this morning, and even as I talk about fear or being scared or being afraid, something comes back to you very quickly that hasn't ever left you, and it's something that you fear, something that you're scared of, something that you're afraid of. Can I say to you um, that God is never dismissive of that? The point I'm going to make is not this, but I want to say to you who may be afraid of something this morning, that when you feel your fear, when you feel afraid, in addition to feeling that, Try to take a deep breath. Jesus, when he meets his disciples here, breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. And here's God's providence again in the theology of my message. When you feel afraid, When you feel the rush of that fear, breathe. And in that breath is the presence and the company of God. Does that make sense? So so even this morning, and there are things that I'm afraid of, I breathe. And if you are afraid of something this morning, if you feel a sense of fear this morning as I talk about fear and maybe you can't hear what I'm saying next because you're feeling fearful of something, you just sit and you breathe, okay? Now, in this text, Jesus is addressing his disciples' fear. He, is, he, is, he sees where they are He knows they're in a locked door. The disciples, uh, and if you look up in the chapter, um, what's right before verse 19 is this summary of how the religious leaders who have pushed for Jesus' execution are responding to the disciples. They are going around and creating rumors that the disciples have stolen the body of Jesus. So the rumor mill, And our church is not quite like most churches, but most churches, I think we have one too, but we don't have one like other churches. Most churches have rumor meals. And in the rumor meal, all it takes is for somebody to say a little bit of something here 
And in about 20 minutes, everybody in the neighborhood knows some version of the rumor. So these religious leaders uh, put a little something in the rumor mill, and they were talking about how the disciples of Jesus had stolen his body, had robbed his grave. And so the authorities are being pushed and encouraged to go and to find the disciples of Jesus and ultimately to find the corpse of Jesus because they're not going to accept this controversial event of his rising from the dead. If it's true that he rose from the dead, the whole thing changes. If it's true that Jesus rose from the grave like he said he would, then the world is different. So they are going to push this agenda and they're going to have the authorities go and look for the disciples of Jesus. So the disciples of Jesus, smart people they are, get in a room and lock the door. They are afraid. They are fearful of the Jews. And Jesus comes and he stands among them. And he says to them what we read together. And for us this morning, I want to suggest that our response to the word of God here is to become a people that Jesus speaks to. To Jesus speaks to his disciples uh, and and, and, and imparts to them peace, speaks to them about peace. And my, my, my hope for us is that we will become this people, that we will become a people of peace. A people who is not just unafraid and fearless, but a people who advances the cause of peace, that we will be a discipling community of peace after the word of Jesus here. Now, what does that mean? And so three more uh, sort of uh, sections, three more pieces of what it means to become a people of peace, what it means to be a Christian in this sense. First, it means to interrogate our fears with Jesus's greetings. And I think you have this here. Um, It means not to avoid what's true and what's real. It means to say, what I fear is real. But it means then to introduce to that very real fear the greeting of Jesus. So it it isn't dismissive of fear. This is the problem with a, a, a lot that happens in the church. We mistake emotion as something to be dismissed rather than something to be addressed. And Jesus does not dismiss their fear. He simply interrogates their fear with peace. He introduces peace to fear. And peace here is a response that has within it the ability to cheer his disciples up. Later on, uh, this comes out. Peace here is another emotional response to fear. And um, this this looks like you saying in your life, Uh, Well, here's an example, a very current example. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Victor resigned. I think this was talked about last week. I wasn't here, Uh, but I saw the letter, and I've talked to folks. And um, one of my fears is, oh, Lord, you know, um, what does this mean? 
What does it mean for us as a staff? What does it mean for us as a church? How do we respond when one of our pastors resigns? And and, and, and interrogating that fear of mine has to look like maybe some of you saying, cheer up. Christ is present. This is God's church. We're God's people. God's got this figured out. That is interrogating fear with the greetings of Jesus. How does it look in your life? Now, that's one example that's almost personal, but it certainly borders over into the congregational life, too. But how does it look in your life when you think about your fear? When you think about your family, when you think about um, your friends, what does it look like for you to, to talk to your fears with the words of Christ? The second way that we would become a people of peace is that we call others to feel and to live into this other emotional climate. That we don't say fear is wrong or there's something wrong with you if you're afraid or fear is, is um, unrealistic or something like that, like your fears don't really matter or what you're experiencing emotionally doesn't really count. We just introduce, like Jesus does, the presence of something else. We, we find a way to communicate to friends who we are supporting through hard times that there is another way, that there is another path, that what's in front of them is in front of them. What's here is here. Uh, the Jews are starting rumors, and they may be coming to arrest us like they arrested Jesus. But that's not the only thing happening. And, and, and when we call others to remember peace, we're essentially saying in one form or another, what's happening right now in your life is real, but what's happening right now in your life is not all that's happening. It's a way we step back and we say, God is at work. So take a step and look back and scan what God is doing in the midst of your fear. Lastly, uh, do something with your hands. I love in this text that that Jesus um, shows his disciples his hands and his side. And it reminds me that what we do uh, with God is not just heady. It's not just in our hearts. It's not just something we learn. It's not just something we communicate. It's an embodied reality that what what we feel, what we know about God reaches us in our bodies. And and in this text, doing something with his hands looks like Jesus showing his disciples his hands and his side, where his wounds were from his crucifixion. And he, in some ways, is proving to them that what has happened to him gives him the ability to bring them peace. He's doing something with his hands that, that confirms for them that peace is possible. And sometimes when, when we are becoming this kind of people, a people who do not live by fear but by faith, a people who live by the peace of God and not the chaos in our lives or the rumors of other people or the, or the, or the decisions of others, we do something, we find a way to act 
to live into that, even if our heads aren't together. So, so Jesus shows his hands, and for us, maybe we give ourselves to the service of others. Maybe we do something that is diverting. We do something that, 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 that opens the world up to the largeness of what God is doing. That God is not just about what's in front of us, but God is about all of the above. I probably could say that better. Um, but let's move to our last text. And this is the one where you need to clear your throats because it's a longer passage. It's in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. This is the account of uh, the two uh, disciples uh, on their way to the village uh, named Emmaus. If um, the first passage that we looked at has underneath what the disciples are doing, anxiety. And if the second passage has underneath uh, what the disciples are doing, fear. This one, this one has at the bottom of what's happening for these two, Cleophas being one of them, sadness or disappointment. Anxiety is sort of this future-looking feeling where, where I'm not sure what will happen and I'm, in, I'm up in arms or I am alarmed about the future. Fear has to do with what is happening right now in front of me, what is in front of me, the, the thing that is so large that I might not be able to see anything else. Here, these two um, friends, we don't know. We don't know if they're a couple. We don't know if they're um, buddies. They... They seem to be talking about a kind of deep disappointment with Jesus. And I wonder this morning if you've ever been disappointed with Jesus. I wonder if, if you, and, and it's hard to admit, and maybe in church because it sounds like it's irreverent if you do, but, but I wonder if you've ever been uh, just just brokenhearted over what something Jesus did or didn't do. Have you ever thought about a direction that, that Jesus didn't go in for you and been disappointed? Have you ever seen... Um, the same thing coming up in you that you thought was finished, maybe sin. And you were victorious and triumphant for a while. And you had prayed and maybe fasted and had other people praying and maybe fasting. And you were along the way, thinking that Jesus had, had acted with some clarity, only to fall again into the same sin. Ha have you ever prayed about something with with such 
power and focus and scriptural truth and humility. Wanting God to do something, desiring for Jesus to act in a way that he didn't. Maybe you wanted a baby and you didn't get a baby. Maybe, maybe you wanted a man and you didn't get a man. Maybe you wanted a job and you didn't get a job. Maybe you wanted to go into a school and you didn't get in. Maybe you wanted God to heal someone who mattered and they died. That's where these two folks are. They wanted Jesus to be something that Jesus wasn't. And the beauty of this text is that it doesn't, it doesn't exactly say. Now, we can go there just because you can preach a text the way you. But, but the text doesn't say they wanted Jesus uh, to rise from the dead. All we know is they wanted him. They had believed him to be the hope of Israel. That powerful, poignant phrase, we had hope. Language that grips me every time I read it because there's something there. And, and, and Luke, smart guy that he is, doesn't quite tell us all that is behind those three words. But, but there's something underneath there that draws us to these two if we had ever had our hopes dashed by Jesus. Before the conversation finishes, before Jesus breaks bread, that, that short but long length of time when what you wanted wouldn't be. And these two, they walked with Jesus, even though they couldn't tell they were walking with Jesus. And they, they stayed with Jesus even though they couldn't recognize Jesus for whatever reason. They couldn't see him as he was. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't notice him. And in the midst of their trouble, <clears throat> sadness, disappointment, grief, hopelessness, they were with him. And I, I, think, I think that is... That is one of the ways we can respond to this text that I will sit with for a moment. That we, that we like them, walk with Jesus. Whether we, whether we can tell it's Jesus or not. How does that, how does that look? How does that, how does that look? I think it, it looks by accepting the presence of strange people. Now, um, y'all are strange to me, and um, most of you, most of you, not all of you, but most of you, and um, I'm being a little playful when I say that, but I'm also kind of being truthful, um, 
and and amen. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean to walk with God in a church like New Community? Right. It means. I'm going to accept. Where's Pradeep? I saw him. Did he leave? Because he doesn't like to hear me preach. He walks out. He was probably one of the ones that walked out. Uh, oh, he is here. Oh, yeah. Laura made you stay. God bless you, Laura. Uh, uh, I can pick on Pradeep. He's one of the strange people uh, that I accept, you know. You know. Um, when I saw you, I figured I'd do that. Um, but, 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 but what does it mean to walk with God? It means to accept the presence of people who, who you don't know who may be God's instruments in your life. It means to accept the, the new um, strangers because they may become people who open your eyes up to the presence of Christ in fascinating ways. It means that when you are doubting God, when you are feeling hopeless, when you are not sensing the company of God the way you used to, you don't leave church. You show up for church. It means you leave church when you feel great with God. It means you come back to this community of strangers, become family. When you feel far from God, when you feel disappointed by God, because it's the presence of strange people that walks you along long enough to see God again. Number two, it means to listen to others explain their faith stories. I'm three minutes with him finishing, uh, just, just so you know. Uh, and in three minutes, I'll tell you how far I am uh, from finishing. No. It, it means to listen uh, to uh, the others explain their faith stories. These two disciples are talking to Jesus and saying, who are you? Where have you been? Don't you know the news? Haven't you, haven't you seen what's happened in Jerusalem? Are you the only person who has been asleep for the last several days? And they begin to tell their faith story. And then Jesus begins to tell his faith story. And this text, it has two competing emotions for me. One is this deep uh, sort of feeling of appreciation of hopelessness. But the other is this kind of envy because these two disciples get to hear the word incarnate explain the word. And Jesus tells Jesus' faith story. Even though he is a stranger to these disciples. And so they're sharing. And in the midst of their sharing, in the midst of them talking about God's meaning among them, God begins to expose himself very slowly. This is evangelism, actually. This is telling others about faith. This is listening to others and their faith story. This is listening to people share what really matters in their heart. And they're doing it here for us. They're clueless, but they're listening. They don't know exactly who they're working with, but they're walking anyway. They ask him to stick around long enough so that they can know more about him. Eventually they have a meal. The last thing is that they enjoy their meal with Jesus. 
And, and I think this is one of the ways we walk with Jesus. I think, I think when God is distant, the best thing we can do is pull up a table, maybe with others, maybe by ourselves, leave an empty chair and say, you know, God, if you show up, good, but I'm going to order my favorite dish. Sometimes walking with God alone means learning how to feed yourself what is nourishing. It is not forcing yourself to feel a certain way. It is not being manipulated into service so that you can be called faithful by somebody else. Sometimes walking with God in a mature way is learning what to put in your mouth when you're hungry. Think about the mistakes you made. My wife thinks that I am an emotional eater. (laughs) And I've said to you before that my wife is always right. So the way... I protect my wife's rightness. And Dawn is in church today. Dawn and Bryce are here today. Everybody who doesn't think I have a wife because my wife is always in Brownsville, my wife is here today and my, and my son. Right? Right. So, so my wife thinks I'm an emotional eater. My wife is always right. And that is an unqualified statement. So the way I continue to say that my wife is always right is I say, you're right, I am an emotional eater, right? Um, But when she says that, um, she says, well, you know, you'll eat sweets when you're stressed, you'll go get a, you know, pie or something and this, that, and the other. And I tell her, I tell her, I say, you eat pie and you feel good. Wait, no, wait, no, wait, walk with me. This is, this is, this is, you eat pie and you feel good. You have to eat. Shouldn't you have an emotion that is good when you eat? So I'm an emotional eater. I am going to eat and I am going to be pleased by that dish or I'm not going to eat it and be mad. What kind of emotion should I have, right? I mean, God didn't want me to say that about my wife. (laughs) Um, Sometimes when you're walking with God, and I'm done, I'm finished, and you can't sense the company of God. You need to take what is, the, in this text, favorite Christian food. The, the meal that Jesus gives us. And eat it because that is what nourishes us. Some of y'all may be, I mean, I like wheatgrass like I like pie. I mean, you know, you might see me knocking back a shot of wheatgrass. So, I mean, you know, it might be that one day. It also might be banana cream pie from Who's Your Mama. I mean, it's, 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 
This is what it means to be nourished. Uh, I'm going to pray for us this morning and, uh, and pray that something here is the word of God for us today. So bow your heads and uh, let, us, let us pray. Katie Asaza is here, and I'm going to pray for her uh, while I pray. And I'm going to ask her to give our benediction. And she can give that benediction uh, in any way she wants, as long as she tells us something about what God is doing uh, in her life. Um, But um, I will pray. I think we're going to, are we going to sing, guys, or no? We're going to sing? All right. And then Katie Booker. James is going to sing. That means we got to pray. So, <laughs> Almighty God, we do thank you for the ways that you make connections in the midst of random, sometimes scattered thoughts. And while these are not completely random and scattered thoughts that I've said this morning, they may come across that way. And so would you be the one connecting for us what needs to be connected? I want to pray for my friends, for your beloved who are here, who are feeling things that are hard, um, that you would make known your appreciation for hard feelings, that you would uh, meet them where they are, that you would meet us. We pray for our pastor, and we thank you that he has uh, been able to have a couple of days away this weekend, and as he returns tomorrow, would you bless him and strengthen him, give him vision and clarity of thought wisdom do the same for our leadership team and our ministry team leaders small group leaders those who serve your church so faithfully I thank you for Katie and for Julio, for their family. I thank you for the other missionaries that in some ways her presence represents to us today. I pray for her. I pray for them. That you would be good to them in the greatest ways. That you would be faithful to them. that you would regard them highly and that you would exalt them in the minds and opinions of people. That people would find them and uh, missionaries from our church like them, trustworthy carriers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Good morning. What a joy to be able to um, spend this morning here at home with family. 
I related to a lot of what Pastor Michael was saying as the past couple years, January has tended to be a month that's filled with a lot of anxiety and fear for me as we look at a new year and I think what's going to happen in terms of ministry and our children start their new school year. And so the past few years, it's just been, it's been a month that for me has been filled with anxiety and fear. So God's word uh, was so real to me today as I was able to worship amongst you and be in the presence of brothers and sisters in Christ. And think back over the past year of God's faithfulness in so many ways in Colombia. Um, seeing new people come to Christ, seeing new uh, steps of faith taken by the people in our community, um, the joy of serving where we serve, uh, and, and seeing the ways that God is at work uh, brings peace, and being among you brings peace. And so my prayer for you today is that you would continue this journey with God, experiencing his presence and his peace in very real and tangible ways. Um, and I'd just like to leave you with a, a blessing that we say amongst uh, my family every night before our kids go to bed. Uh, and it's, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord uh, look upon you with favor, and may he give you his peace now and forever. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.